This week on Across the Peak, Rich and I are going to finish up our series on putting together your generalist toolkit. Welcome to the Across the Peak podcast, the show where Rich and Justin discuss preparedness, the birds and the bees, guns, history, tattoos, and well, basically all the stuff your old man should have taught you. Rich Brown's a failed 70s child actor, retired Marine Corps officer and former cop. Justin Carroll, he's a washed up former special operator, half-assed author, and adventurer at large. Learn life skills, harden the f*** up, and become a dangerous man. Get your damn boots on, gents, because we're going across the peak rich what's going on buddy sitting here having a cup of uh, coffee and talking to you buddy what kind of coffee are you having man once again brother you caught me flat-footed i'm not drinking anything sexy this morning um i've really got into um espressos last year in europe and I am enjoying a Nespresso. It's a uh, Columbia Arabica Meso. It's a level seven intensity. Okay, cool, cool. Out of seven, out of eight, seven out of ten. Seven out of ten. And if you can hear some dogs barking in the background, that's my wolfhounds, and they are going nuts because somebody's farm dogs have decided to wander onto our property. So. Life in the country, bro. That's right, man. That's right. You need to move out here to the big city where it's uh, where it's relaxing, peaceful. <laughs> <laughs> no thanks. Um, I'm sitting here drinking some coffee. Uh, this is one of my favorite, absolute favorite brews. So last night when we recorded part one of how to put together your generalist toolkit, had a few too many, um, and I am drinking some coffee from the Kicking, Kicking Horse Coffee Company, uh, which is in Canada. As you know, I used to live in the Pacific Northwest, and this was my go-to coffee. And I'm drinking the Three Sisters blend, which is named after the Three Sisters, which are three peaks in the Canadian uh, Rocky Mountains. And uh, man, maybe we'll do an episode on how to make a good cup of coffee because I'm pretty, I'm pretty passionate about starting the day with coffee. Oh yeah, as am I. And you always got the cool shit, man. I'm, I'm always, some, I got something ghetto and low budget. Got to step up your drink game, man. I know, and when you're down here in a couple of weeks, man, we definitely, we, we should probably video that, how to make a good cup of coffee. We make a couple of different coffees via a couple of different ways, like a France press and a espresso. I got this, I don't know if I told you, man, I got this handmade Sicilian espresso maker that's my new jam. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Do you have a French press? Yeah, I got a France press. Okay, I got a. Uh, I have an AeroPress, uh, which is my favorite way to make a cup of coffee. Well, yeah, well, maybe we'll do that. Maybe we'll throw together a video on that, and definitely we'll put a blog post on acrossthepeak.com about how we make our coffee, and maybe there'll be a video on there. I don't know, and I really don't like. We're not. We're not being coy and like teasing this. I don't know if we're going to do that <laughs> yet or not. <laughs> we're not intellectually sophisticated enough to be coy about what our intentions are with this podcast. This is almost like a Seinfeld episode. It's like a show about nothing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty much right. Uh, that's pretty much right. And like you, like you said the other day or yesterday, last night, I, I think I see stuff all the time, and I'm like, man, that's an episode. That's an episode of the show. Oh, yeah. We were at a Chinese restaurant last night, and I was like, this is an episode of the show. What order in a Chinese restaurant? Here you go. So yesterday was more of a, not yesterday, but last, 
I guess what was the show we did about putting together a basic toolkit was more like if you're a renter, I think it's the way you described it to me off air. This is more like you're a homeowner. Now you you can't just have the basic toolkit. Maybe you need a couple of intermediate things, right? Yeah, because there is a difference there. I've been a renter. I've rented. I've been a renter for most of my life. I've rented apartments. I've rented uh, long-term Airbnbs. I've rented. I, I've actually rented a couple houses, and I've also owned a home. And when you own a home, you have a lot more flexibility on what you do. You don't have a landlord that you can call and say, "Hey, uh, this board on my porch is rotten. I need you to. I need you to fix it." If you can't do it yourself you're going to be paying someone to come out there. And if it's a serious job, if it's my house needs a new roof on it, guess what? Somebody's getting paid to put a new roof on it. I'm not going to try to tackle that on my own. If it's either too big a job or too complicated a job, if, uh, you know, if my, I don't know, if I have electrical problems, I'm calling an electrician unless it's something as simple as throwing the breaker or something like that. Uh, But you have a lot more opportunity to do a lot more things. And I think as... As a renter, you should be basically competent. You shouldn't have to call someone. You shouldn't have to call building maintenance for every little thing. You should be able to take care of some basic stuff on your own. That's just one less time that you're going to have to wait around for somebody to show up, babysit them while they're, you know, fixing some minor thing. And that toolkit that we talked about last week will pretty much do that. As a homeowner, you might need a few more things depending on how much you're comfortable getting into. And if you're not comfortable getting into some of this stuff, um, I, I would say you make an effort to learn and, you know, learn a little bit about construction. And, you know, that's one of the great things about my life. If you look at my resume, it basically looks like I can't hold down a job because I have bounced around from thing to thing to thing. Um, you know, I was in the military for eight years. That's the longest I've ever done anything. Uh, before that, before I went in the military, I worked some construction. I worked in a butcher shop. I worked... Um, uh, for a, a tree cutting service. Uh, I worked in a factory. Um, so I, I think there's something to be said for not just getting out of high school, going straight to college and going straight into a quote unquote career because you miss out on a lot of, miss out on a lot of other stuff, the opportunity to get your hands on a lot of other pies. And, and like, I, I don't know, this has worked out pretty well for me. I, you know, I, I make an okay living and, uh, I guess it doesn't always work out that that well for everybody, but I think there's something to be said for not just following the traditional routine. Would you agree? I would agree, man. And I've had a rather nonlinear career as well, and I'm very proud of that. But like I said in another episode, uh, it made me autodidactic. And one of the things that before I got my degree, you know, I was just a reasonably smart guy, but I read everything I could get my hands on and God bless me with the ability to retain a lot of that. But one of the things I found with that in in the journey of educating myself, I'll share with you one quick thing and why getting exposed to a lot of different things, which is what I think the crux of your point was by learning to frame a house and working in a factory and being in the military and doing all the things that you've done. It gives you a larger breadth of of, uh, knowledge that you can apply, whether it's using a tool bag or or fixing a radio and uh, one of the things that I learned along this path is one of my friends who had a real snooty degree and we were debating the merits of um, Machiavelli and the prince and he's like well you know truthfully uh, he just wrote it to gain favor with the Medici's he didn't really believe any of that stuff 
And I'm like, really, who told you that? Well, my professor and, you know, what? once I drilled down on, it wasn't an, an original thought he had. It was some professor in, in this expensive college he went to. I said, that's funny. Did you ever read Machiavelli's The Art of War? Because in it, he regurgitates a lot of the things that he talks about in The Prince. And I think he wrote The Art of War before he wrote uh, his book, The Prince. And he was kind of stumped. I'm like, huh, you didn't learn that, did you? Because you didn't acquire the knowledge for yourself. And one of the smartest intellectuals the 20th century produced, at least here in America, was a guy named Eric Hoffer. Eric Hoffer didn't go to college. He read the equivalent of, I think, three libraries worth of books. He never got married. He never had children. And he was a longshoreman. And he was blind when he was... uh, he went blind for like five years when he was a child, and he was always afraid he would lose his sight, so he was just read as if at any moment he might lose his vision, and um, wrote some amazing books that I'm sure we'll talk about one day on the show. Yeah, definitely. Man, I, I, I'll just level with the audience here. I never went to college. I know I know you went to college, but yeah, man, I and, and honestly, I don't miss it. I don't think I missed out on anything, and, and quite honestly... Uh, I think if I were giving advice to a young person today, unless they really wanted to go to college and had a clear-cut thing in their head, I would say teach yourself the humanities, teach yourself the arts, teach yourself the teach yourself the liberal arts, and learn a skill. Go to a trade school and learn an actual skill, and don't walk away with one hundred and fifty thousand dollars in debt. Walk away with ten thousand dollars in debt and an actual skill you can put to use right now. Actually, do and find your passion. Find something you want to know about and have a thirst for knowledge for and do that actual physical thing because, uh, you know, those jobs are, are many of those jobs are not going away. A lot of things are being automated, um, but man, a lot of these physical skills, I doubt we'll ever have robots cutting our hair or robots uh, working as locksmiths or, or robots doing a lot of these, you know, the quote unquote trades. That, yeah, I'm on totally on board with what you're saying, man. The the richest people I know do not have a college education. They learned a trade and and they applied a little bit of just a little bit of business acumen to their trade skills and just shot through the roof. So there is so much value in that because it's like last night we were talking about roofing and I'm like, eh, I don't. I have fixed my roof as far as my skills and abilities can go. Now it's time to call in the expert. So, And he quoted me a price that I about passed out. <laughs> and now I know why. And now I know why this guy has one of the biggest houses in town. You know, it's like he has this special knowledge that he acquired through 20 years of climbing roofs and working his rear end off. And good for him, man. Yeah, absolutely. And on that, you know what? I, I intend to build a house probably sometime in the next five years with my own two hands. Not I'm not one of these people that says, oh, we're, I'm building a house too, and really that means a contractor's building it for me. I intend it to build it with my own two hands. And I've thought a lot about this. I, I like to think a lot about what uh, what style of construction I'm going to use. I'd, I'd rather go with like post and beam construction than like modern traditional stick building. Uh, but roofing materials... We're getting a little off topic here, but I enjoy this. And this is a fun intellectual experiment. Shingles are are expensive; they're not cheap. You got to replace them every some somewhere between every five to ten years, somewhere in that range. Well, no, that's not true. Maybe every ten to fifteen years, you're gonna have to replace your entire roof. Shingles blow off. They like there's all kinds of problems with them. Uh, 
like, why doesn't every house in the country have a metal well, roof? Well, I, I, well, you know, my roof's metal. I, I'm, I'm truly, I'm truly. Well, my curious. roof's metal, and there's drawbacks to it too. And one of the drawbacks is you have to replace the screws because the screws have those little rubber washers on them, and the little rubber washers go bad every ten to fifteen years. And the roof is sixteen years old, so. I think what's allowed some of the water penetration is the screws are backing out because the metal, as it heats and expands throughout the season, it slowly will turn those screws out of the roof. So, And I've got a steep pitch on my roof, so it makes right? climbing around on it almost impossible for the layperson. Okay, okay. All right, well, that's a reason. That's a good reason. All right, man. So enough intellectual discourse. Are we ready to <laughs> jump into our intermediate toolkit? Yeah, let's do it. So... I think first, before we go any further in this, we probably need to address something that we should have talked about last week, and that is a tape measure. That I, I don't know how that escaped our notice. It was on the list, and we didn't get to it. But everybody needs a tape measure. Let me tell you a little bit about the, the tape measure. This is pretty cool. My dad, um, he retired from a Japanese conveyor company, Nakanishi Conveyor Company. Not that it matters. And uh, so I grew up around a lot of Japanese men, that uh, engineers that he would bring over to the house because they wouldn't celebrate these U.S. holidays. Uh, so he, my dad would be like, hey, man, pile in the truck and you can come stay with me and the family at the house. So one of the things, uh, my dad one time handed me this tape measure and he says, check out this tape measure. I look at it. And I go, okay. I hand it back to him. He says, look at it again. I look at it again. I'm like, okay, it's a tape measure. He goes, no, it's not. That's a Japanese tape measure. And evidently, you when we when I think Japanese, I think, okay, well, they're on the metric system. But there is still out there some, some Japanese measuring on the old Japanese inch. And believe it or not, those tape measures are still floating around out there on construction sites. So my dad was like, you have to really watch it because the Japanese could come over with this tape measure that looks almost identical but it's like 15 sixteenths of an inch wrong you know i mean it's just barely off but that little bit of variance could be enough to to torpedo an entire project well yeah because lumber is built on on specific dimensions if you're buying studs they're 96 inches long or 90 actually they're 92 inches long right because you have your top plate and your bottom plate that will make up that additional eight feet or for a total of eight feet, all your studs are supposed to be 16 inches on center. Plywood comes in four by eight sheets, so it like you only have to cut. It fits the height of that wall when you're hanging it, or it fits your floor joists or whatever. And you have a seam in the middle that where two pieces are sharing the same stud or floor joist or whatever. Uh, so yeah, like being off by a tiny bit could throw that all out of whack. And then you got to cut every single piece of plywood. You, uh, that's really well, again, interesting. Yeah. Man. And this is a conveyor system for, you know, like my dad put in Nissan, uh, Honda. So if you've got somebody running around measuring and cutting steel and links a conveyor and it's wrong throughout this entire thing, I mean, oh my God, it, the cascading effect would be huge, man. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, you should have a tape measure. You should have a reasonably good quality tape measure. And I, I'm going to say just buy a 25-foot tape measure. You're not really going to save a whole lot of money by buying a, you know, a small tape measure. There's there's a pretty good economy of scale there where if you buy a, you know, a cheap $10 10-foot tape, tape measure, it's only going to be a couple bucks to get a 25-foot tape measure. 
Uh, but also there's a point of diminishing returns there. You go much over about 30 feet and they start to get expensive again and you start paying for those extra, uh, extra feet. And that 25 foot range tape measure is just a good convenient size. It will do most of the things you need to do around the house. Um, get yourself a tape measure, put it somewhere good and learn it. Can love I, it, love it. Can I, yeah, can I give a personal endorsement on the tape measures? Yeah, man, I love personal endorsements. The Stanley Fat Max, and I agree with you, 25 foot is a great length. And uh, they're not cheap, man. A Fat Max is expensive. But the the few that we have, and that's predominantly what we own are the Fat Max. You know, you're going to use them. Your your kids are going to use them, and your freaking grandkids are going to use them. They are quality well-made tape measures won't let you down well, that's good to know I'll, I'll i'll check i need to step up my tape measure game apparently because i think i have a i don't know what i have uh and i've never been like a tape measure snob but man this actually i'm looking at stanley fat max 25 foot tape measure on amazon it's 18 bucks and man the reviews are just off the charts for this thing yeah, I, I love them, man. Me and my dad, like, my dad's like, is that my Fat Max? What are you doing with mine? I'm like, no, nah, this is mine. It's got them, you know. Yeah, and we will uh, we will link to all these things in the show notes, so uh, you can you can check that out at acrossthepeak.com. All right, so tape measure, that's something that everybody should have, renter, homeowner, uh, itinerant, whatever. You should have a tape measure. You should be able to measure things, especially... Uh, we mentioned some saws last week, especially in relation to cutting things. You have to, unless you're, you just have a pipe hanging out of the wall that you need to cut off so you don't trip over it when you walk by, you're going to have to measure things before you cut them. And, you know, the old the old adage, measure twice, cut once, uh, man, I, can, I cannot endorse that yep. strongly enough. Double check your measurements. It'll pay off in the long. It takes a little bit more time up front, but believe me, it doesn't take as much time and money as saying, man, I just cut that wrong. Now I got to go get another one, cut that one to the right length, and and start over. Yeah, because out here in the country, dude, going to a Lowe's that's going to town, as we call it. That's a twenty minute drive each way. So you're absolutely right, man. We cut, we will measure two or three times before we make that cut because I'm not going into town, yeah, and yeah. leaving a project hanging. Yeah, absolutely, man. <laughs> Make sure that measurement is right. And and actually, I'll say this. Th- I, this is a little bonus because we didn't have this on the basic list. But one thing that I absolutely could not live without, especially when I'm making cuts on wood, is the ability to mark that cut. And like we could get really complicated with this. If you're cut, cutting sheets of plywood, you're probably going to need a chalk line or something like that. But I'd say for most homeowners, the, the stuff that you will are most likely to cut, which is like relatively small dimension lumber, two by fours, four by fours, two by sixes, stuff like that is a Swanson speed square. And a Swanson speed, Swanson speed square is this little triangular shaped thing. Uh, it, it will help you most basically you just put it up against a piece of wood and it will let you mark perfectly straight line at a 90 degree angle to the way that wood is running. Uh, you can also use it to figure out the pitch of a roof. You can use it to, um, if you're if you're cutting runners for stairs, you can use it for all sorts of things. And these things aren't very expensive. They, I would say, upgrade to the metal one. Don't buy those plastic ones. I have a plastic one and I have a metal one because I one day I couldn't find my metal one, so I went and bought a plastic one. And uh, already the tip is broken off of the end of it and. It's getting pretty beat up. Uh, uh, that is something I, man, I could not live without. I use that thing more than I ever thought I would. 
are you do you have a, a speed square yeah but i don't know the make and model of it, it it's a metal one i i think that's definitely the way you need to go and one other thing on that and we didn't again we didn't have it in the notes because we suck as uh like an, a pencil you know marking on the wood uh, you're probably going to want a pencil i mean just a simple number two pencil it can be a carpenter's pencil and you, you know everybody's like well what's the big deal about a carpenter's pencil it's it's square or it's flat or whatever and it, it's that way so it won't roll off the wood right yep it won't roll off the wood you can cut it to uh i mean that's basically why you need a utility knife you sharpen that thing with your utility knife and you get a um not only will it not roll off the wood but the way that lead is it's very wide and narrow so you can get it right up against whatever you're trying to mark be it a traditional square a speed square whatever and run it right along that line instead of being you know if you have a round pencil and you're trying to get up against something uh frequently that will throw your line off i mean sometimes as much as like a quarter of an inch it's, it can be pretty extreme so it lets you get in nice and tight with whatever your uh straight edge or point of reference is and make that mark you know, nice and straight and right along the line. And those things aren't expensive. I have, I usually go to Lowe's and they have those things in a, in a bucket at the checkout thing. And if I'm getting low, I'll grab a half a dozen or 10 of those things. And just, uh, I've got them, you know, I've got four or five of them in the, one of the outside pockets on my, on my tool bag. I'll sharpen every single one of them. So no matter which one I pull out is it's going to be sharpened. It's going to be ready. Uh, and you, I, I mean, you do lose these things if you do a lot of construction projects and I, I'm an apartment dweller, so I don't, I don't do a whole lot of stuff these days, but man, still, I absolutely use that carpenter's pencil all the time. And one of the things I like to do is, and what made me think of this, I replaced a, a rotten window seal over the weekend. And when I took, took the old rotten window seal out, I flipped it over where the bare wood was. And the person that put it in there put their name on it. It was like somebody named Shane. I don't know who Shane was or, you know, when Shane was running around. Maybe he's dead now. But I thought it was pretty cool that Shane took the time, wrote his name on that piece of wood, and then put it down there. And that's something that uh, my family and I have done as we've done woodworking projects where nobody could see it. But we know it's there. And someday, many years from now, maybe somebody else will find it. You know, uh, if you if you take apart anything I've made, what you're going to find on the back of wood is a bunch of math problems, and you're going to be like, "Man, this guy didn't math good." <laughs> but <laughs> I'll always like I, there's all kinds of uh, dimension lumber all over the place where I've tr- like, you know, tried to figure out like how how long I need to make a cut or cutting on an angle or whatever. Um, <laughs> that's normally that's probably where most of my uh most of the lead in my carpenter's pencil get gets used quite honestly dude you need to start signing your handiwork bro be a craftsman that's right man well, <laughs> yeah maybe i do man maybe i do so uh all right so a tape measure a speed square and a carpenter's pencil if you're going to be cutting wood especially like those three things are absolutely indispensable your tape measure you can use for all sorts of other stuff measuring the height to hang pictures, measuring out a room. So when you go to the furniture store, you know what kind of space you got to use for, uh, measuring a door before you try to bring a couch in through it, all kinds of stuff you need a tape measure for just for, you know, even if you're not going to be a, 
a master carpenter or do a bunch of stuff around the house, just having a tape measure is, is one of those really, really helpful things. And, uh, I can't recommend that one strongly enough. Uh, so let's go ahead and move on. And I'm going to say you probably need, if you're going to be doing any, any kind of thing mechanical at all, probably need a ratchet and a socket set. And, uh, basically what are, a, a ratchet is is a, a handle that you put sockets onto and you can turn it basically how would you explain a ratchet rich bro oh that's like how would you ex- describe the color blue i mean my god um so so you you can it's got a switch on the back that you can flip to either uh drive a screw or a nut into something or take it out so basically when you if let's say i have it flipped to drive that bolt in, when I turn the ratchet to the right, it binds and it turns that screw. But when I turn it back to the left to reset my, like basically my stroke, it it spins freely and doesn't like back that bolt back out on the back stroke, right? Yeah, so it's a, an amazing little mechanical device that does the work for you. Or you can do it without it and beat yourself to death. Yeah, uh, so the sockets themselves are what actually interact with the nut or the bolt or the screw, or and by screw I mean a screw with like a uh, a nut head, like a machine screw, and those are going to come in a variety of different sizes. Well, you you probably don't need a just for general stuff a bunch of specialty sockets. You probably don't need to buy a huge set that has deep wall sockets and all this other stuff. You probably need just a basic set and we'll definitely post links to, to a good craftsman. I I think it's like a 75 piece set because one thing you do need is both metric and standard because in any given piece of hardware, and actually just the other day, I was tightening the bottoms on my chairs and there's, or tightening the legs up on my chairs, uh, my bar stools up at my, in my kitchen. And would, like you would think, these things were actually made in the USA, and wouldn't you think they would use a, a SAE, a standard socket, like in inches and fractions of an inch. I I was sure that yeah, that was like a 3 8 uh, bolt, and I grabbed my 3 8 socket, and it turned out it was a metric, and I don't know, I think it was a 7 or 8 millimeter or something. Um, you should have both of those because honestly, you never know what you're going to run across. And this is going to cost you a little bit more money for something kind of, you know, with, with a decent level of quality. But I think this is absolutely indispensable. Well, and because I'm such a great co-host, I looked up the definition. So a socket wrench. Here we go. A ratcheting socket wrench is the device within a hand tool in which a metal handle is attached to a ratcheting mechanism, which attaches to a socket. This, in turn, fits onto a type of bolt or nut. Pulled or pushed in one direction, the ratchet loosens or tightens the bolt or nut attached to the socket. Turned the other direction, the ratchet does not turn the socket, but allows the ratchet handle to be repositioned for another turn while staying attached to the bolt or nut. This ratcheting action allows the fastener to be rapidly tightened or loosened in small increments without disconnecting the tool from the fastener. Shazam. There we go, man. So... Uh, I looked up on Amazon while you were talking socket sets and uh, like, man, you can actually get into these pretty affordably. So Amazon basics has a mechanics 123 piece socket set that has um, all your metric sockets from four millimeters all the way up to 14 millimeters, your standard sockets from five thirty seconds up to nine sixteenths, 
Um, it has some deep sockets. It has three eighths, three eighths inch drive sockets, which uh, the drive means there's a. I'm not even going to get into explaining that. A little more heavy duty. Um, it comes with some Allen screw, some Allen keys. Um, it comes with some uh, screwdriver handles and some screwdriver bits and some, I think, a couple of extensions. This thing's 40 bucks, man. And, you know, if you're a mechanic this and, and you make your living with sockets, this is not what you want to buy. But if you're a homeowner that needs to do some basic, basic stuff, man, this is going to answer the mail for 90% of what you need to get done. Which is what this show is all about. That's absolutely right, man. We're not trying to make you, you know, prepare you to to spend every day turning wrenches under a truck. Uh, we're we're trying to prepare you, you know, that twenty percent effort that will take care of eighty percent of the stuff. Right on. So standard and metric, uh, they probably need a little bit of both, right? Probably a little bit of both standard and metric. You you need you have to have at least one ratchet handle, and it's good. It, like there's a couple other things you can have you can add in there. I like to have I really like to have a couple of extensions, and those are basically just you know they fill space between the head of the ratchet and the socket itself, so you can get back into hard to reach places without getting your whole hand in there. Um, is there anything else they need here, Rich? No, I don't think so. Okay, uh, so so on that, there are some things that you you can't use a ratchet for. There are some times when you can't get a ratchet into a space and you still need to turn a bolt, whatever the case may be. Um, if that's the case and you're getting a little bit more advanced with this, I'd, I'd say the next thing you might want to look at is a set of combination wrenches. And those, I'm sure everybody's seen those. Um, like if you've ever seen... If you've ever seen like a Playboy magazine where it's like a mechanic themed shot and that girl is standing there in like a ripped wife beater with like a perfect smudge of grease on her cheek, leaning up against the car in her short shorts, holding a giant wrench, it's probably a combination wrench. Wow, that was really, really (laughs) specific. (laughs) Holy, that's like you designed that Um, from memory, dude. So a combination wrench is, it's basically going to have one open end. So sometimes, uh, you know, you might have to turn a, a nut that is on the middle of a bolt that you can't get a socket over. Uh, and and maybe, maybe you can't get all the way to the end of that bolt for whatever reason. So you can't even get the closed end of the wrench over. Uh, so it's got one inch, one end, which is closed which it looks like a circle on one end and a, a two-tined fork on the other. Um, and these, again, get a little bit more specific because, again, we have standard and metric of these. And they also get a little bit more expensive. They take up a little bit more space. Um, if you're doing any kind of mechanical stuff, especially on vehicles or, or what have you, I, I would say you absolutely need a set of combination wrenches. Just for around the house, I, I would say... With a good socket set, you could probably get by without this, but that situation might come up where you need this, and and that's all that's going to do the job for you. Yep, absolutely. All right, man. So we're going to get into power tools, and and here's where we really get into some cost uh, and some wide disparity in cost. But I would say if you're going to have one power tool and only one, it needs to be a drill. Would you disagree? No, I 100% agree. 
Man, I think a drill is the most versatile thing, most versatile power tool you can have because a drill obviously can drill holes and that's what it's intended for. But with the right bits, you can also drive nuts, you can drive screws, it, you can you can cut holes if you need a round hole, like to install a doorknob, you can buy a hole saw, which is a special, just a special bit for the drill and cut holes. You can, if you need smaller holes, like a, you know, say a one inch hole for the backbore on your, uh, if you're installing a lock, uh, you can buy those, you know, spade bits up to spade bits or Forstner bits up to, I don't know, probably an inch and a half or so. Uh, you can buy specialized jigs that will let you cut holes to uh, uh, let you drill holes to a, a certain location and certain depth. If you want to join stuff together using dowel rods, there is all kinds of stuff you can do with a drill. And I am a big fan of corded drills. Cordless drills are very, very convenient. My dad and I do a lot of little projects together and he's got, I think he has two or three DeWalt cordless drills and I, I will tell you, they are convenient. They are certainly convenient. But uh, if you're not using this drill all the time, that means you got to store that battery correctly uh, or else it's going to wear out and you're going to lose the life cycle of the battery. So if you're using it every day as a construction worker, buy some extra batteries and you know just cycle them out and you should be good to go. But for my use, I don't, I don't use a drill every day. Sometimes two or three months will go by without me pulling the drill out. I like that corded drill. I don't ever have to worry about whether or not it's charged or battery running out halfway through a project or something. But that also means I have to keep it plugged in and I have to usually have an extension cord for it. But um, I, I don't know. I'm just I'm just a fan of a corded drill. Also, you can get a much higher quality drill for much fewer dollars. Well, here's the thing. I've got both. I think you need to have both. But for 90% of what I do around here... I do it with a cordless drill, and and there is huge disparity on cost here. I've got a uh, cordless drill set that we bought from Harbor Freight. I think it's called Chicago Electric, but don't quote me on that. And then I've owned Craftsman, DeWalt. The one that I haven't owned but I sh should, which I think is the best, is the Hitachi 18-volt uh, cordless drill. The ergonomics on that thing, the battery life. Um, I've used them a lot places I've worked and been around, but I've never owned one and it will be the next one I purchase because they are, they're phenomenal, uh, little cordless drill, but the batteries will let you down, man. They don't last forever. Even if you maintain them correctly and you can't have, you know, you can't have one cordless drill and one battery. You're going to have to have two, possibly three and get prepared to buy new, you know, 18 volt batteries every few years. So there, there's some costs associated with it, some ongoing cost to maintain and use one but but gosh man you can just take them so many places without having to roll out extension cords and i'll fight all that crap that's right i i will say quality wise though you can buy a dewalt corded drill eight amp three eighths inch keyless chuck corded drill for about 65 bucks and a comparable uh a comparable dewalt 18 volt cord less drill probably going to cost you somewhere north of 150 bucks. Uh, so if, if you're just, if you're just, uh, you know, if you're not going to take this outside of the house, if you don't have a, a farm like Rich has, well, that makes sense for you because to use a quarter drill out at your barn or something, you'd have to have a generator out there to power that thing or run 16 miles of extension cord. That doesn't really make sense for your use case. So think about what you're going to be using this for, where you're going to be using it. 
And if corded makes sense, you can save a heck of a lot of money on it. And I think generally, um, well, not necessarily generally, but you can get much more powerful drills than you can get out of uh, battery-operated cordless drills. And I want to go back to something you said a second ago, and I think it may have escaped the listener, and I'm going to say it maybe in a slightly different way. You're thinking, if you're listening to this, you're going, I don't need a cordless drill, or I don't need a corded drill. You're 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 right. You probably don't, but at some point you're going to need a hole. You're going to need a hole in your house in a piece of wood. You're going to need that hole, and the only way you're going to get it, man, is with a drill. So it's, this is the enabling condition that makes that hole you're going to need to uh, to cut possible, right? <laughs> yeah, that's that's absolutely right. Uh, unless you're going to buy a bit and brace or something, <laughs> right? And cut that hole. Which that not way. Rec- not recommended. Yeah, same. Absolutely not. Yeah, uh, so I, one one word of caution here. I mentioned you can get a more powerful drill. Uh, I would say you might want to exercise a little bit of discretion there. If like if you get a drill with a really powerful engine, sometimes it has a tendency. As soon as that engine kicks over, there's some centrifugal force that happens that will pull the drill a little bit off and cause the the bit will basically just run away with the drill once it starts biting into the wood or metal or whatever you're cutting. Especially a problem with wood. And with a too powerful drill, an overpowered drill, it can be difficult to to drill a hole straight without using a jig. So don't you know? Don't go all out for the two hundred dollar corded, you know, five hundred amp drill that you could drill through a bank vault with. Uh, when that's not really what you need, uh, pick something that's that's kind of general, is kind of uh, kind of on the lower end of the power spectrum, unless you have a specific reason to need something that's really powerful. And here's a pro tip for when using a drill. One of the things that I do, and Justin, I don't, you've got a lot of woodworking experience as well. I will more often than not pre-drill the holes where my nail is going to be so I don't split the wood, especially if I'm working with some expensive woods or things of that nature, or I want to, uh, when I'm done, I want it to appear as if I was never here. I don't want any uh, hammer marks on it. It's going to be a beautiful finished product. I will do stuff like that. Do you ever, do you ever do that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And uh, yeah, uh, even, even if I'm putting screws in occasionally I'll drill, I'll drill pilot holes. Um, one to ensure that screw goes where I want it. Cause I've already got a hole for it and it's going to follow that path of least resistance. And the other, like you said, is to keep that wood from splitting, especially out near maybe the end of the wood, or if I'm using a, like a very thin piece of wood that might be prone to splitting. Yeah. Great call, man. I should have, uh, should have hit that sooner. Now, I mean, we can't give you every little pro tip along the way, but I think a few of them every now and then is probably a good idea. And so you mentioned a little bit about bits. Um, I think a lot of people think I buy one bit and that's good to go or one bit set, but really there's, there's uh, bits for metal work and woodwork and, and maybe a combination of the two, right? Oh yeah. There, there are bits that are made specifically for wood and those quite honestly, probably going to get you by for most of your homeowners tasks. Unless you need to drill anything that's metal, and then you're going to need a, a, a metal bit, there. Are, fortunately for us, there are also bi material drill bits that are for wood or that'll work well enough on wood or metal. And I would say go middle of the road on that. Uh, if you're just a casual, you know, just the casual user, just getting into your, you know, putting together your first toolkit, get that get that bi material set of drill bits in a range of sizes from probably about one sixteenth up to probably don't need anything bigger than half an inch for, for general purpose stuff. And what you're going to find 
is those bits in the middle of that box you're going to use a lot. And those ones at the super tiny end and the super big end, you're hardly ever going to pull out. But, uh, but if you need them, you need them. And they come in a set anyway. So what are you going to do? The, the other uh, bits that I would say you need to have that really make a drill versatile are screwdriver bits. Tell me more about that. So basically, these are just bits that are, uh, you, you can buy them in a wide variety of different screw uh, head styles from like your, your Torx bit, your, like that, that square bit that goes into those decking screws with the square hole in them, mm-hmm. your standard Phillips head, your standard slotted bits, and basically, and, and, I guess the slotted ones aren't super common because they don't work super great with the drill. But basically, this lets you screw stuff with your drill instead of doing it all by hand. So, And this is going to be absolutely necessary if you're, I don't know, replacing the wood on your deck or something. You, you're not going to screw those two and a half, three inch uh, decking screws in by hand. You're absolutely going to need a drill for that. So um, having the ability to leverage that drill for more than just putting holes and stuff, but actually putting, uh, fasteners in is going to make it, it just gives you a whole other level of, of usefulness and utility and versatility with that tool. Right on. So if they're, if they're drilling holes and they're fixing wood and we talked about the square, there's one other product that they probably going to need, um, to go along with those items. What, what is that? Yeah. Probably need a level. If you're building anything, uh, making sure that thing is plumb and square and level is really, really important. We won't go into all those things, but even something as simple as just hanging a picture or a mirror on the wall, uh, you want that thing level. And without a level, it's really hard to know. So I I went through this recently. I was helping someone uh, who's about to sell her house. Uh, I was helping her hang a bunch of pictures and mirrors and stuff, getting ready for you know, for open houses and and whatnot. And she didn't have a level uh, and I didn't have mine with me. And I'm like, well, this will be easy. I'll just measure down from the ceiling, forgetting, you know, the the basic rule. I'll just measure down from the ceiling on this side, measure down from the ceiling on this side. Those holes should line up or those nails should line up. I should be good to go. And what did I forget, Rich? Uh, See, now you've thrown me a softball. (laughs) Well, I forgot that that ceiling is not always level. So I Atta ended boy. up I ended up measuring exactly, you know, 43 and very high ceilings in this house. I ended up measuring down 43 and three quarters inches. I remember it like it was yesterday because it was, was like two days ago. 43 and three quarters inches on both sides. And I made those marks and stood back and looked at it. And there was at least an inch of difference on those two on those two things. So I was like, well... I, I'm going to have to do it. I'm going to have to drive back home and get my level and come back. Because that's, that. I, I mean, honestly, that's really the only way to, to get something level. You can measure up from the floor. You can measure down from the ceiling, whatever. That doesn't mean that house is, is square, level, or plumb. So a level is really the only way you're going to definitively answer that question. And what's so sad about that is I have done the same exact thing. And when you said it, I'm like, uh that should work. Now, wait a minute. I've had this same flipping thing happen to me before trying to mount frames and stuff on the wall and and wonder why in the hell is that not level? Because you didn't use a level. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right, man. Um, yeah, yeah. A level is pretty important. So there are small levels you can get. There are, there are, you know, if you buy one of these 
damn pre-assembled toolkits, which I'm I'm not a fan of. I say put together your own toolkit with what you need. Get good quality stuff for it. You that forces you to shop around a little bit and get a little bit more familiar with the tools you're putting in there. And instead of just looking at a bunch of stuff in a box or a bag that look like tools and saying, "Okay, I have a toolkit. I'm good." I've seen these little levels come in these toolkits that are about eight inches long, and that's fine. I mean. As long as it has a flat surface and a uh, a spirit level in there, a, a little thing, a liquid with a bubble in it, that that should get it level. But it takes away a lot of versatility from. It. I'm a big fan of the 24 inch level, and they make levels that are six feet long for you know for putting on the top sill of a house when you're framing it. Uh, you know they make these massive levels. You don't you don't need that. But a two foot level. Uh, is long enough to get a good, accurate level on anything you're going to do around your house. Uh, it's long enough to use for a straight edge for stuff. Um, I, I guess that's really about all you can do with it. I, you know, I wouldn't use it to, you know, pry pry the couch up to look under it or something. I don't know. I don't know what else you would do with that <laughs> <laughs> that level. But this is a fairly precision instrument. You kind of want to take care of it. You, you don't want to beat the edges up. But if you need a, a you know, a, a good straight edge it will provide that and it'll get things level which seems like a fairly specialized thing but really it's not you man especially if you're building stuff if you don't get it like square and level you're gonna have all sorts of problems down the road just just do it right and this is a pro here's a pro tip i'm bad about this I like to see progress happen. I like to see, all right, studs are up. All right, we got this whole thing sheathed. All right, I like to see that. All right, we got the windows cut out. We got the headers framed. I like to see these product, these these check marks, these uh, you know phase lines of okay, this is done. I can I can stop thinking about that and think about the next thing. And I am bad to know I have a problem with something. Know this window is not quite square. Know this, um, you know. Uh, this is a little bit off level, but that's all right. It, it's not too bad. I, I can deal with it and just move on. Instead of saying, nope, I'm going to make this thing, I'm going to make this right because it's going to pay off big in the long run. That's what I would recommend you do. If you cut that if you cut that piece of plywood to go over whatever and it doesn't exactly fit, man, take like cut it again and get it right. Believe me, it's hard to do sometimes, but it will pay off so big for you in the long run. Totally agree, man. Great pro tip. So we just talked about the level. Um, we got anything else on our intermediate kit? Um, I would say if you're going to throw one more thing in there, and we talked about a handsaw last week, and this was your suggestion, Rich. Uh, I'd say if you're going to throw one more thing in there, a circular saw would be an awesome like intermediate tool to have on hand. Yeah, you'll use it more than you think you will. Um, it's for when a, a miter box is like we talked about uh, on last episode is not going to cut it, and your hacksaw is for metal. So it's like, well, what am I going to use now to cut this uh, piece of plywood or piece of paneling? Well, that's where your circular saw fills that void. Yeah, and my like my dad still calls every circular saw in the world a skill saw. Um, Skill is skill. S K I L is a brand of circular saw. I mean, they make a bunch of other stuff too, but they make circular saws. Um, if you're going to buy a cordless drill, uh, I would and and you want a cordless circular saw, you're going to have to standardize on brand. Uh, I know you're a big fan of Hitachi. Kind of lost me when they when they started coming out with personal massagers and whatnot. Um, 
Uh, I'm I'm a DeWalt fan, pretty much unapologetically. I like DeWalt tools, um, but pretty much any halfway decent brand skill, DeWalt, Makita, um, what am I forgetting here? Hitachi. Ryobi is a good one. Ryobi, yeah. Um, pretty much any decent brand. But if you're gonna if you're gonna go the cordless route with everything, you're gonna have to like pick a brand and stick with it so those batteries work on all those tools and you you have some commonality there. I don't I don't like bouncing around all over the place with that stuff. Okay, since since you're giving your endorsement of DeWalt, um the reason that we don't pers- I think we might own one DeWalt tool here. My dad went to college with uh the guy who started the company DeWalt and I forget the his son's name but him and my dad got in a fist fight in college. My dad threw him out a window. They didn't get along at all. So my dad's like, I'm not buying any of that freaking crap. So that's why we don't own DeWalt tools. <laughs> that's a good reason. That's a good reason. Yeah. Can't be mad at you for that. <laughs> um, so I think that's about it, man. Uh, unless there's anything else you can think of. I think that'll about cover it. I think that'll get you started. And, you know, if you're, like I say, if you're the apartment dweller like me, um, you know, here in downtown Nashville, you probably don't need a circular saw, uh, but you probably can still find a use for a drill here and there. There's probably going to be times where having a drill would prevent you from calling the, uh, you know, calling building maintenance, calling someone to come in and fix something for you. And here's the thing I'll say on this. I, I would I would shop around to get this stuff now because the hardest thing in the world, for me to do at least, is get in a situation where I really need a tool and I'm buying it just because I really need it. And I that that creates this tendency for me to buy something kind of cheap that's not really going to last because I'm like, well, I just need it for this one thing. Uh, and then I, you will always regret that decision because you're going to have that tool for, I, I mean, for as long as it lasts after that. So I would say start researching this stuff now. Start having stuff in your mind that, that you want to add to your toolkit. And let's say you haven't gotten around to the drill yet and all of a sudden you need a drill when you go down to Lowe's or Home Depot or Ace Hardware or whatever you already have in mind like what drill you want and what drill is going to like meet your needs and and you're not going to end up buying a piece of crap because you're in a hurry and because you don't really want to spend the money um, on something that you just need once but hopefully you already have kind of an idea of hey this is going to be my toolkit it's going to be there for a long time let me go ahead and get something that's going to last me for a while. Totally, totally agree with that. And and if you know, talk to the guy in the tools section. He probably knows because he sees what tools continually come back as being defective, and he can probably help steer you. But the the brand that Justin and I have given you this morning will probably take care of you. Yeah, absolutely. So, Rich, what's the book of the week, man? Oh, I've got a good one this week, and I already hinted at it uh, earlier. You know, Eric Hoffer. The True Believer. Have you ever read that? Or are you familiar with that book? I have not. Um, well, here's how I got turned on to it. Probably back in 2000. And a friend of mine said uh, it was required reading at Harvard. When he went there, he only went for a semester or so. But he said, you know, this is a really good book. And he gave it to me for like a birthday present or something. And I read it in 2000. And what The True Believer explains, it's it's Eric Hoffer's thoughts on the nature of mass movements. And it's a social psychology book by the gentleman that I already described as this, this ultimate intellectual autodidactic guy. And um, what was so fortuitous about reading it in the time that I did is because then we saw 
the Twin Towers being brought down by these people who are just fanatics. And Hoffer breaks the book down into, I think it's like three parts, maybe four parts. Uh, the Appeal of Mass Movements. Part two is the Potential Converts. Part three is the um, United Action and Self-Sacrifice and four in the beginning and the end of, of movements. And his point is that mass movements begin with this widespread desire for change from disconnected people. And the, these aren't just any kind of people. There's, these are the kind of people that... First of all, you have either an internal locus of control or an external locus of control. If you have an internal locus of control, you think, I'm the master of my fate. If I made a poor grade on that test, it's because I didn't study enough. If I got a speeding ticket, it's because I was speeding in a school zone. You internalize your own successes and failures. Well, I got news for you, man. A lot of society are external locus of control. If they made a bad grade, it's because the teacher didn't like them. It's because of their race, their ethnicity, their gender. There's something else that's driving that. So those kind of people are ripe for a mass movement because they have no confidence in the existing cultures or traditions of their group. They feel that their lives are ruined or spoiled or some way. You hear some things that, as I'm talking that are probably you've heard described about these active shooters, right? They believe there's no hope, they're dissatisfied, and these people are looking for some sort of, um, I think Hoffer calls it self-renunciation. You know, I'm renouncing my former self and I'm seeking something else. And some of the, I, I tell you, if everybody should read this book, but there's some things in it that are very specific to what we see with active shooters, with some of these uh, very extremist movements, whether they're the far right or, or the far left, and um, or as well as uh, Muslim extremism. And some quotes would like and that are from the book, there's no doubt that in exchanging a self-centered for a selfless life, we gain enormously in self-esteem. The vanity of the selfless, even those who practice utmost humility, is boundless. So there's... And, and there's another quote by Hoffer that says something like, there's nothing so selfish as the truly selfless. I, I, two other quotes, and then I'll, I'll turn it to you. It says, a movement is pioneered by men of words, materialized by fanatics, and consolidated by men of action. And finally, uh, the permanent misfits can find salvation only in a complete separation from the self and they usually find it by losing themselves in the compact collect, uh, collectivity of a mass movement. So if you think about what we've seen with people that join ISIS and, and things of that nature, we see this again and again. So a buddy of mine who was a colonel in the Marine Corps, I suggested he read this. He's not a reader. He's like, Rich, I'm going to read two books in my life. What should they be? And I prescribed The Prince and this one. And he went to uh, the Naval War College and someone was making fun of him in that he didn't read the right books. And they're, these are very well-read men. So they asked these PhDs at the Naval War College, what's the one book you should read to understand um, you know, what we're seeing right now with Islamic extremists? And the, and the professor said, The True Believer by Eric Hoffer. And they were like, what? How did this guy get the one book that you should read on this? But... It's a great book. Eisenhower had everybody in his cabinet read it, and um, even Hillary Clinton, which I hate to say that, but because she was trying to create a mass movement. She had her staffers read it during her election campaign. 
Well, that's cool, man. I'll, I'll definitely check that out. Uh, so the quote of the day, we haven't gotten to a quote of the day yet, but you, you said something during that, that, uh, that, that kind of rattled this loose in my head when you said, uh, men of words, fanatics and men of action. And I think what we want our listeners to be are men of action, men and women of action, people of action, uh, but also people of thought. Uh, And the quote this week reflects that. And this quote is often attributed to Thucydides. I don't know that uh, absolutely we're certain that he said that, but it's often attributed to him. And that quote is, quote, A nation that draws too broad a difference between its scholars and its warriors will have its thinking done by cowards and its fighting done by fools. So, uh, you know, going back to a couple of weeks ago, we we would like to see people be competent and dangerous and, and not just in the physical realm, also intellectually and emotionally, right? Absolutely, because uh, if if you're if you're not, you know, you're easily could fall prey to these mass movements, and you know, you could find yourself at the end of one of these uh, extremes, and that's a bad place to be, man. Yeah, absolutely, man. Uh, why don't you close this out, Rich? Hey, if you like the show, man, uh, across the peak, you can uh, like us and share us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you find awesome podcasts. And we're more than just a kick-ass podcast. We've got a website, uh, www.acrossthepeak.com. If you want to send uh, Justin and I a rant because you're pissed off about something, love to hear it, send it to rich at acrossthepeak.com, and we'll get right back to you, man. You've been listening to the Across the Peak podcast. Be sure to visit acrossthepeak.com for show notes and bonus content. Until then, be safe. And if you can't be safe, be dangerous.